primary reading this morning is from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. By 2020, the international megachurch brand known as Hillsong was the hottest thing in churches with massive campuses across the world. What was the key to all this success? Well, apparently, celebrity endorsements. At its peak, Hillsong loved to name drop its star-studded membership. Chris Pratt, Selena Gomez, Kourtney Kardashian, and of course, the Biebs. But it wasn't just A-list celebrities. At Hillsong, New York, there was actually a VIP seating section for influencers and anyone who could show their social importance. Hillsong was about creating the hippest image of Christianity possible. And young people by the thousands would flock every Sunday for a rock concert and an uplifting message by their pastor, a.k.a. the hype priest, a.k.a. the hot pastor. In our third week of our series in James... Our converted brother of Jesus continues dropping practical wisdom on us. Last week's Pastor Sarah talked about being quick to listen, slow to speak, and prioritizing the protection of those most vulnerable. Now the focus begins to shift in the other socioeconomic direction. So let's continue this morning, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So, what does James want his churches to do, or more accurately, not do as followers of Jesus? To not commit, as James calls, the sin of partiality. 
Now, what exactly is this kind of sin? The sin of partiality is to judge someone's character based on their externalities or to make distinctions about a person's value and how they present themselves. So we often do this in regards to a person's wealth or perceived influence, but we can also do this by elevating or lowering a person based on their race, nationality, culture, sex, gender expression, orientation, even tattoos. And in case the church listening to this original letter wasn't sure how this practically worked out, James describes at length what this might have been in the terms of the first century. And so he focuses particularly on how the sin of partiality can create a toxic celebrity culture within a church. Let's look at verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and you say, sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Though Christianity was not illegal yet in the Roman Empire around 50 AD, about when this letter to James, from James was written, worship gatherings in the churches weren't typically happening in the way that they would happen today. You didn't just walk off the street into a church service. They were typically invite only. And so there was a danger that some of the guests, because of their wealth, might be getting a, something of a first century VIP treatment. And after all, the Hebrew churches that James are writing to are overwhelmingly poor. They have very little influence. They certainly have no fame to speak of. And so could you imagine what it could do for a church community if a wealthy person were to become a follower of Jesus and join that church? Everybody might want to be a Christian in the neighborhood with the right celebrity endorsement. Or at least he might buy us some food. So with that in mind, why wouldn't you roll out the proverbial red carpet? But while human nature may naturally want to do this, James says that this is actually deeply problematic. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? At a very practical level, Any kind of celebrity culture in a church is harmful because it will inevitably harm the church, which the Bible calls the body of Christ. The problem, though, is that celebrity culture is a slow poison. Because on a macro level, this is often not noticed at first. In fact, as long as the sin of partiality is successful in elevating the status of the church, it might even be celebrated. We'll just say we're doing it to reach people for God. But a church that judges people on the basis of wealth or power or influence will always end up excluding some people whom God is actually doing great things through. They're just not important enough while simultaneously putting a spotlight on people who have no business guiding a church. A community like this always sows the seeds of its own collapse. That same year, Hillsong New York peaked in its uh, celebrity endorsements. 
its hot pastor was exposed for a series of extramarital affairs. Hillsong, New York began to rapidly disintegrate as nobody wanted to be associated with such a damaged brand. Even the Beebs himself, who had considered himself a mentee of that same pastor, put a message out on his social media, inexplicably in all caps, which said, by the way, Hillsong is not my church. And like that, Hillsong, New York was over. Now, If I think this issue of partiality in churches is simply a matter of trying to be too hip or garner celebrity endorsements, we might think Parkside is safe from danger. But I have seen partiality even in the most boring of Presbyterian churches. When I was young, I was working at a Presbyterian church, and I remember one morning there were some whispers of someone really famous coming to church, a very uh, influential and respected attorney, and I'm young, I want to get on board that game, I want to help my church, so within 60 seconds, I am caught up in the hype. I'm like, well, I, wanna, I want this guy to feel special, I want this guy to feel loved, that when he comes, he's going to absolutely want to come back, and, you know, because reasons. And he actually came. So who was this mysterious celebrity attorney? Oh, it wasn't this guy, but I'm not going to name him because Charleston's a small town and you can't name people like that. But let's just say the reason why this guy was famous was because he had commercials on TV telling you to call him if you got in a car accident. We were so desperate for some hype that we were willing to roll out the red carpet for essentially an ambulance chaser. Why do we do this? Y'all, I think the cause of celebrity culture in churches isn't because we just like the idea of celebrities. It's about the church thinking we need the influence of any person more than the influence of Christ. That for the name of Jesus to be famous, we somehow need famous people to give him praise. This is why I think James goes as far as to call the sin of partiality evil. Because by glorifying people, it actually steals the rightful glory of Jesus, the risen Savior of glory who overcame sin and death. But the sin of partiality can even corrupt the interpersonal dynamics of a church. Here's another example. I I knew a pastor, again, boring little Presbyterian church, who wanted to throw a banquet for the church's biggest givers. And at first, this, you know, seemed like it made sense, right? He he wanted them to know that they were seen, that that they were appreciated. And so in that conversation, I I asked him, I said, okay, um, do you know everyone's incomes in the church? And he said, no, why, why would I know everyone's incomes? Of course not. I said, well then, how do you know who your biggest givers are? You see, in the economy of God, the only way you can know who's giving the most is if you know how much they're giving from. Otherwise, you're just giving rich people who may be giving far less of a percentage of their income a special seat. And while you think you're appreciating them as givers and helping them be seen, what you're really doing is sending a message to every other person in the congregation. That elderly gentleman who's living on a fixed income, 
that college student who needs to be supported and taken care of and not just exploited for their free labor, that single mom who's just getting by and does not need to be giving to the church. And you're sending a message to them that they will never be appreciated. Never. But you know what? This kind of special treatment isn't even good for the influential and rich in a church. Verse six. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? James points out that some of the very people that we might be tempted to elevate are the most in need of repentance and healing. And yet by segregating the rich and influential to some upper tier status, we are actually denying them the chance at real discipleship. For fear of upsetting them and losing their resources, we won't bring them into genuine community where everyone worships at level ground. We won't confront them in their potential participation in harmful systems. We may even just end up feeding their narcissism. By treating them this way, we're actually doing them a disservice. To give favoritism to the influential trivializes their potential for vulnerable, life-giving relationships with fellow Christians. To give favoritism to the wealthy robs them of the simple goodness that it is to experience the gospel. But I might be wondering, do we have to do this? Like, maybe I kind of like the church that has the glitz and the glam and the hype. I mean, maybe I'm not like into Hollywood celebrities, but I kind of like the celebrity preachers. And look, maybe, gosh, our church budget just requires courting the wealthiest congregants, okay? So what gives James the right to say all this? Well, to be fair, James is appealing plenty to Jewish religious tradition that warns against partiality for the rich, warnings that we heard in our first reading this morning in Leviticus 19, which says, do not twist in legal matters by favoring the poor, being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Love your neighbor as yourself. But James isn't just quoting Levitical commands. In fact, he seems to even be going further than Levitical laws. It has often been said that James sounds more like a Marxist philosopher than a Christian theologian. But James' epistemological grounding here isn't in the belief of the inevitability of some Marxist meta-narrative of history, but rather the meta-narrative of God's redemption story. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. James is referencing what Jesuit priests in the 20th century called the preferential option for the poor. This is the doctrine that states when you look at the stories of Scripture, God consistently and dramatically sides with the plight of the marginalized. God frees the Hebrew slaves from slavery. God defends Israel from the might of invading empires. God raises up the poor and refugees for great importance in Israel's history. James is saying then 
that when Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God, this was both a continuation of what God had done in history and where God is ultimately bringing history. That, y'all, is a meta-narrative, which means then to dishonor the poor, to reject God's preferential option for the poor, is actually to resist God's plan of redemption and to be disloyal to the kingdom of God. And so in reality, James' authority to make these bold statements about rich and poor is not rooted in a human-made political ideology, but rather a divinely ordained kingdom theology. Not only that, but James is really just riffing off the teachings of his older brother, Jesus. James views partiality as a sin because he believes it violates Jesus' greatest commandment, verse 8. If you are really fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You see, from the moment Jesus affirmed this commandment from Hebrew scriptures as the greatest commandment governing interpersonal ethics, there was someone, a religious attorney no less, to dispute what that pesky neighbor part meant. But friends, you and I are no different. My fallen nature, my Sin nature has a tendency to wholeheartedly affirm that I should love my neighbor and then seek to justify why I just don't happen to have any neighbors to love. The churches that are hearing James's letter probably think they're loving their neighbor, but very likely they were only loving their convenient neighbors, their wealthier neighbors, the ones that had something to offer them in return. But what does James say here? Verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one part has become guilty of all of it. James is saying that if I am not loving every neighbor, then I cannot say I am obedient to Jesus' command to love any neighbor. But is that really fair for us? I mean, can I really be expected as a Christian to love my neighbor, to pay zero attention to a person's wealth or status or influence or however they're presenting themselves? I mean, that seems really hard to do. And and honestly, I'm probably doing better than most people. Well, again, James seems to be drawing his logic here directly from Jesus' teachings that were recorded on the Sermon on the Mount James talks about murder and infidelity here as examples, and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the same. What was Jesus doing with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, one of the goals was trying to communicate to religious people, people who were used to following religious rules, that by selectively following the more doable rules, that doesn't actually count as being obedient to the will of God. And look how James spins it in verse 11. Can you imagine... Someone on trial for murder. All the evidence is squarely against them, and they approach the bench. They speak to the judge with quite, quite a bit of confidence. And they say, Your Honor, I may have killed a man, but I would just like to point out, I have been faithful to my wife my entire marriage. I have never cheated. Or better yet, a man cheats on his wife and he's caught. And then he goes to her quite confidently and says, look, honey, I don't see why you're so upset. 
It's not like I murdered anyone. He's going to be murdered too. (laughs) It's absurd, right? But this is what James is communicating to someone who claims to be good enough. Whether we identify as conservative, moral, religious people, or whether I identify as progressive, ethical, non-religious person, it doesn't matter what type of person I am claiming to be. It doesn't matter how well I think I'm doing. It is not enough. It will never be enough. Why? Because God's vision for human flourishing is nothing short of perfection. God's not going to settle for a little bit of corruption, a little bit of injustice, a, a little bit of racism or sexism or whatever ism is harming others. No, God's plan for the world is full and complete redemption. And so this is true. And if everything James is teaching here flows directly from the teachings of Jesus, then I cannot for a moment think that someone else is guilty of committing the sin of partiality, but somehow I have not. The problem isn't Hillsong, New York. The problem isn't other churches. The problem is here. The problem is me. I show partiality to people who I think are important for shallow reasons. I show favoritism in a way that erodes the unity of the church. I discriminate on how someone presents themselves. I fall short in every measure. So what can I do? Verse 12. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. If I view my moral or ethical performance as a checklist to hit or some curve to be graded on, I will always fall short. I will never be able to get it right enough. But God doesn't give us these commands to shame us, but as James says, to actually give us liberty. God's law is meant to spiritually and socially liberate those around us even as we experience liberation for ourselves. And yes, God still judges us. God accurately judges us and our shortcomings in a way that no other human can. But God does not condemn us. Instead, God invites us to meditate on the nature of God's mercy. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, most of us fear being judged without mercy. We fear that we will be shown no mercy by our peers, by our acquaintances on social media, by our parents, by people in authority over us, by our religion, maybe even God. It is so exhausting to fear that if I mess up, if I don't meet the expectations that are set before me, then there will be no mercy for me. 
But the good news of the gospel is that if I'm a follower of Jesus, I can know that God initiates mercy. And if God starts with mercy, I have the opportunity to grant mercy to others and even myself. How can I have confidence that this is really true? Because God initiated the grandest act of mercy by dying on a cross for my sake. And yet, because Jesus triumphed even over death, I can be confident that mercy triumphs over judgment. Every moment of every day, we have the opportunity to begin again, to create a community without distinction, which more and more person by person is the church that God is calling us to be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Being that James is against such favoritism for the rich, how can schools of theology like prosperity gospel be justifiable in Christianity? I mean, I feel like that person just answered their own question, <laughs> right? Like, prosperity gospel for you, though, as you don't know, though, is this belief that if you really love Jesus and you're really faithful, then God will bless you. Um, physically, in your relationships, in your careers, particularly materially, like you'll, be, you'll be wealthy, and that wealth is a sign of God's favor on your life. Um, and so this is a, it's actually a very, uh, it might sound strange to us, but this is very popular in different segments of the world and even in the United States, uh, and particularly communities that have been historically oppressed and marginalized. And so, yeah, this is a, yeah, it's something that I think we have to be careful of because when we're engaging with people who are really entrenched in it, it's a slow process to say, okay, maybe wealth is not the means of God's blessing in your life, and can we talk about how God might be giving you blessings in other ways out of faithfulness that are less material? But yeah, I think this person's got a, a good critique of it. If James and Jesus consistently and clearly preach that being rich is dangerous, it's the root of all evil, etc., why does the church not encourage us to be poor? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there are a lot of people throughout the history of the church who have actually come to the conclusion that in order to be faithful to God, they are going to divest themselves of their wealth. But throughout the history of the church, it has always been one of those things where it's like between you and the Lord. And so I'm always very cautious when someone says like, all y'all got to do the thing I'm doing right? That, that's always, that's usually a red flag. And so, yes, there are some people who have said, I think faithfulness is becoming, giving my wealth away and becoming poor. Other folks have said, faithfulness is using my wealth in such a way that it advances the church. The early church was definitely uh, created and supported by wealthy patrons who were leveraging their resources for the sake of the church. Um, and they did not divest themselves of all their money. They leveraged it well for the sake of the church, but they didn't give it all away. And so I think there's different ways of being faithful. The key part of that, right, is the warning on the rich, right, is a warning about, and Jesus does all the time, right, it's the love of money, it's the dependence on money, it's the view that money, and this is, this is quite common throughout history, right, is that money is going to make you self-sufficient, and you will have no need for God because you have been able to protect yourself with all these resources. And that's the kind of the key heart indicator that you want to look at. Um, geez, uh, James was direct about partiality. But how do I marry that up to my disdain for people who attack the vulnerable, the poor, and the marginalized? For those following a certain politician that is hateful. Many of those followers are poor and severely misguided. 
I try to put God before myself, but I fail when having to grant grace to those who are so hateful and divisive. I find it hard to love those neighbors. Yeah. Um, this is, this is the, the beauty and the challenge of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount and James, right? Jesus is telling us something that, frankly, we can't do. I cannot, I just can't love every single one of my neighbors, particularly the ones that are really difficult for whatever reason, right? Whether it's because they're mean to you or their politics or whatever, right? And, and so this is where we, God gives us this ideal. He calls us to live into it, but we are going to fail and that's where the mercy comes in. So I love that this person is already, they already have a self-awareness. Yeah. They're recognizing there's a challenge in doing this. So I think God's already working in their heart in such a way where they're saying, okay, if this is difficult, I acknowledge it's difficult. God, come into my life and start speaking to me. How can I take small steps of loving difficult neighbors? And that's the first step. And this is where grace continues to go into our lives and it builds us up and up and up. That over time, we can then look back and go, wow, I was able to be neighborly and loving in a way that's not perfect, but maybe significantly better than it was a few years ago. Good. Well, if you think of anything else, feel free to text it in this afternoon, or if you're watching online, you can text him later, and he'll get to answer them all tomorrow morning. Great. Thank you, AC. Appreciate it.